I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. Mom. <laughs> Hey, cool moms. So it is still the summertime. I am still in D.C. It's still COVID. We are still self-quarantining-ish as a nation. And Sergeant is still away for the summer in North Carolina with his dad. So, you know, some days are easier than others. Honestly, a lot of days, I have a really good time. It's been really nice, like, staying with my best friend. It feels like college again. I feel, like, kind of irresponsible in the best way while, like, simultaneously thinking about the heavy load of responsibilities that sits on the other end of the summer and, like, coupled with also the unknown of what's happening in the world. Um, But in the meantime, I've been feeling like I'm in college and I've been having like a really great time, again, spending time with one of my best friends, Michelle. Um, But then on the days that I do miss Sargent tremendously, it really weighs heavy on me. And it's constantly playing in the back of my mind. And, you know, I try to be really aware of my energy with him on FaceTime Um, Because I just want to be like fun and pleasant. And the other day he told me that I was boring. (laughs) Which I was really impressed with and also hurt by because I had no idea he knew what boring meant. And he used it in the right context. So we're on FaceTime and I'm like, hey, Sergeant, do you like talking to mommy? Like also what an annoying question. And he said, no, it's boring. Just like that. <laughs> and then I, I literally could not help but laugh. And he said it again. It's boring. And I knew exactly who he got it from. It sounded just like one of his older brothers. And I was just so impressed with him. I'm like, look at your vocabulary expanding. I'm sure mommy is kind of boring. I'm sure I am boring. It's fine. But <laughs> on the days when I am more sad than boring... Um, which happened, you know, recently I'm on the phone with my, I'm on the phone with my grandmother and my grandmother is really dramatic. Okay. Like my grandmother is a Taurus. She's spicy. She wears cheetah print more often than not. No bra more often than not. And has a vanity license plate and also drinks double jacks. So (laughs) my grandmother is wild. That's like too much context, but the best context of this conversation. So we're on the phone doing our like kind of weekly check-in Sunday chit chat. And she's like, how's Sergeant? How's she, how's he doing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, the normal stuff. And then it gets quiet. And she's like, you know, I just miss him. And she breaks out and is like boo-hooing. And this is literally right after I tell her a story about talking to him and him saying, oh, mommy's house and how sad it made me feel. And then she just breaks down crying, hard, ugly crying because my grandmother's dramatic because again, the cheetah print, the Jack Daniels, the vanity plate, she's this kind of person. And she gives me all of this energy that then I have to 
like pull my emotions in check to then show up for her and her feelings. I'm like, damn, I'm sad. Let me be sad about my son. You miss him. I miss him. He's literally a part of the daily fabric of my life. And I have been away from him for much longer than I ever thought that I could handle. Um, (laughs) And then my grandmother is sobbing on the phone. So this week in motherhood, I really uh, have had to decipher and cipher through my emotions about like the emotional labor labor that we do for other people. Um, and sometimes, um, to the detriment of our own emotional labor. Um, and I guess that's just part of being a parent, right? Especially with your own parents. And I imagine I'll probably be equally as annoying as a grandparent, hopefully a little bit more aware or a great grandparent in this case. Um, so yeah, that has been like <laughs> on my mind a lot. And aside from that, from catching up with my grandmother sobbing on the phone, I have been fucking beasting in the gym. That's my like get pumped. <laughs> get pumped. I've been working on the gym, guys, and I finally feel like I have hit a corner where I'm really feeling confident and good about our workouts. And I I just get so excited to like try new workouts I find and save on my workouts tab on Instagram saved folder. So I've been doing a lot of beasting in the gym, getting my life. And also um, because I watch TV on the bootleg internet. I have finished I May Destroy You. I don't know if you all are watching I May Destroy You. If you're not, you absolutely have to because, I mean, I think things that are come on the BBC are just uh, in general, like better programming in a lot of ways. Um, better in terms of it being more original, thought-provoking, provocative programming. And that's exactly what I May Destroy You is. Like, Michaela really has flipped how we view characters and how we view people and and allowed so much more humanity in because every character becomes more and more complicated as the episodes progress. And that's what makes it really brilliant and really frustrating and exciting and just like never dull and never boring. Like like I was on FaceTime. <laughs> so yeah, that was my week in motherhood. And up next is Jody Patterson. I am so excited to have the next guest. Jody Patterson is a social activist, serial entrepreneur, writer, and chair of the board of the Human Rights Campaign Foundation. And of course, she's a mom, a mother of five, no less. And so I want to start off with our inaugural question, which is, what is your sign? And does that mean anything to you? (laughs) I am a Leo all the way. I love the month of August. Um, I love the summertime. I love adoration. I love... Lots of um, adoration. (laughs) Yeah, right. To give and to get. So I'm a Leo. I was born August 22nd. And many people want to remind me that that is the cusp of Virgo. Mm-hmm. And I say, no, I am a Leo. However, <laughs> I have some Virgo tendencies. I like to organize and um, 
things in the, I like to organize the life in the world. However, it never wants to be organized. So it's an ongoing. (laughs) The plight of a Virgo. Yeah. Yeah. But so the Leo and Virgo show up big time in me. (laughs) Big time. Jody, you co-owned like New York's downtown institution, Joe's Pub. You served as the PR director for Zach Posen. You founded your own boutique PR agency and you founded several skincare lines, including Georgia by Jody Patterson. Like, have you always embraced being a multi-hyphenate? Yes, but it's really more about this life that I want to traverse. I don't want to be under one thing or ruled by one thing or defined by one thing. And so I experience all things. <laughs> um yeah, that's my, that is my, that is my, it's called starfishing. And I've been trying to teach that to my children and, and, and embedded in myself to starfish, which means to stretch out in the sand and touch all things. Yes. All things. Yeah. Yes. That resonates with me so much because I've heard this term starfish before. I, I'm that person too. Like I get bored really easily, but I'm also incredibly passionate And when I believe in something, I give it a thousand percent until I have Mm -hmm. nothing left to give. And then I just move forward. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think in a professional capacity, many people. A lot of people have told me various times that I need to pick one thing that I have to be good and focus on and really hone in on that one thing. Do you ever consider that you weren't capable of doing what you set out to do? Yeah, I do. I am usually at the end of the night, (laughs) I always like, can, can I, can I do what needs to be done tomorrow? And that question lingers for a long time. It, it stops me from falling asleep easily. Um, sometimes most recently I've had a hard time getting out. There's like anxiety getting out of bed, knowing what this world is right now. And I think that's self-doubt. Um, you know, do I have what it takes what's required. Um, I had that when my father died. It's always in these moments of big need, the world needs us now, or the family needs us now, um, that I self-doubt. But, and I guess I would say, and uh, I've learned to do those things that kind of keep you moving forward, which is, which are um, exercise for me, right? Puts the self-doubt to the side. Like I'm not more or less capable after exercising, but my brain isn't getting in the way, <laughs> right? Um, so I, I exercise to kind of um, soften the self-doubt conversation that runs through our head. I um, do a lot of journaling, which is like brain dumping ideas into either my phone or into a notebook. And then I go back and read the brain dumps. And I think to myself, oh, wait a minute, you're onto something. Because like, we don't necessarily follow our own train of thought. Maybe we just listen to the negative stuff over and over again that repeats, but we don't necessarily follow our really smart train of thought. So I, I brain dump and then I go back and I look at my journals and that gives me a sense of, okay, you know, you can do it. You've, you've got good ideas. <laughs> you've grown from last year, right? There's optimism within you, Jody. Um, and I think... You know, every time I start a project, whether it's like uh, a new business, when I opened up my beauty business, or then when I had to take my beauty business online, right, from from retail to online, that was a 
moment of, I don't even know how to do this. How do you, can, how do you run a business online? Right. Wasn't my thing, right? And what year was this? This was, this was uh, right after the crash. This was like, you know, four, 13, 12 years, 12 years ago, maybe. Okay. Okay. 10 years ago, something like that. Um, and I just couldn't continue the retail business. And, and my husband at the time said, you know, we're going to have to, we have to cut this one short and just try to do it online. And I said, I don't know how to do it online. He said, well, you're going to have to learn. <laughs> right. Let's learn as we go. And those are, those are scary moments because there's some things you don't know when my uh, things you don't know that you have to figure out a way to learn. Like when my kids said to me, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. I was at a loss for words at a loss for a roadmap total self-doubt. Like, do I even have what it takes to get us out of this mess? Because at the time I thought being trans was welcoming a whole mess. Right. Right. It was something that was an issue that you all had to figure out a solution for. Yeah. I thought it was, I mean, I, you know, I have a whole different take on it now, but just where my mind was there. And that's usually the thing. When you're in these moments of self-doubt, you are inundated with the negative, which might not even be a reality. Like I, it, when my kid said to me, I'm, you know, I'm a boy, I thought this was a mess. And I was like, I can't get us out of this mess because I don't understand. I don't have the tools. As I went through the process of, you know, staying engaged, I realized it's not a mess. You do have the tools, you know, revolution and, 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 and self-love and unity are what is going to get us through this. And so, yes, I do self-doubt all the time, but not for very long. Yeah. You know, I, I, I find very similar ways, you know, it's hard to self-doubt when you're like, I don't know, listening to like future and you're on your third mile and you're feeling like you can accomplish, <laughs> right. you know, you're like, Oh, I'm good. I can do this. Mm -hmm. I can push through. But I think that, you know, motherhood, um, is probably the greatest playing field for us to figure out how do we win a game without a rule book. And if winning is really our goal, right? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? So I, um, as a mother who is also a co-parent, um, a mother of a young son, I think a lot about um, the future, of course, and what does my future family look like when I've already started my family? And so that's something I kind of want to talk about with you, being um, approaching motherhood with your oldest um, and what that looked like for you and then transitioning into now being a mother of five. Um, yes, yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about having your firstborn and kind of where were you at in life and what were your thoughts on the type of mother you wanted to show up as? I was really young in the scheme of things. Um, I was 29, I think, when I had her. I was in many ways optimistic like just so excited and saw all the goodness of mothering. I didn't have a real clue as to how difficult it would be in terms of mothering and being a partner with someone, a wife. Um, I, didn't know, I didn't know how those intersections were going to play out. So I just had a lot of um, drive in me to be a mom who was going to raise a feminist and a mom who was going to raise a brilliant young woman and a mom who was going to be, you know, in step with her daughter. And they did actually, those things did actually happen, but there were some <laughs> twists and turns <laughs> along the way, which derailed, felt like a derailing. Um, and so, I, and I, I did a lot of, you know, my daughter and I spent a lot of time together when 
it was just the two of us. I mean, we slept in the same bed. She had her own bed, but we slept in the same bed. We colored on the floor. I was always an entrepreneur, even from much of her raising. So I had a lot of time at home. She came with me to my meetings. You know, if you hired me as a, I had a PR firm. And if you were to hire me as a publicist, you also were hiring my daughter. She would come with me (laughs) to meetings. (laughs) Um, Or you would be in my loft and she'd be running, crawling around. Um, You know, I just, we did, we went through a lot of my life raising my firstborn was, um, was the, the, the blur, the lines were almost not there between mother and entrepreneur and woman. It was just a, a whole package that, you, you know, it was a package deal. Fast forward, second child, then third and fourth and then fifth, you know, I had to really <laughs> figure out how to detach from the people I love and the things, you know, the things that I love. Like I, I, every day when I get up in the morning, I focus on my kids, but there are moments throughout each day where I fully detach and untether, right? Right. From being a mom, I untether from being a a spouse, I untether from having um, the protocol that comes with, you know, being a 50-year-old woman. (laughs) Right. Because I I have this other side of me that now understands that detachment makes us better leaders, um, better people. So I think the, the woman then was very attached to being a mother and a wife and a responsible person. And this woman has that, but I also can detach and untether. And when I, when I do that, sometimes it's for a few hours, sometimes it's for a few weeks. If my kids go to their dad's house, mm-hmm. um, I detach from all of that. And then when they come back, I find that I have more creativity. I have yes. better vision. Yes. Um, I have found things, new skills that I didn't know I had so I can apply my skill sets to parenting. Yeah. Just, I, so that, I guess the difference is now I can untether and detach, um, when need be. And what does that time look like? Because uh, now I'm just asking out of my own personal yeah, no, need and curiosity. <laughs> what is that time like when you're untethering? I mean, I, and I say that for context, I'm currently un- untethered from my child uh, yeah. going on two months now since he's been with his dad. And this is the, the first time I've kind of taken on this space in motherhood. What is that mm-hmm. time? What does that time look like for you? It's, it is, it's a lot of different things. And when I first started to detach, it was because I had to. I didn't choose it, but we were divorcing and he wanted just as much time with the kids as I wanted. So he was like, I'm going to get him a week and you'll get him a week. And that detachment almost broke my heart, you know, to be away from my kids for a week. I thought I was never going to make it through that time. So a lot of that, the beginning parts of detachment, forced detachment were painful. I cried a lot. Um, I didn't want to get out of the out of the bed. Um, I didn't want to grocery shop by myself. I didn't want to pump gas. I was pretty immobilized. Um, And then that started to shift over the months. And now, and then I started intentionally, then you go go through a phase where you intentionally detach. And so that for me looked like um, sometimes not cooking a meal, (laughs) just because I don't have to. I can just pick out of the refrigerator. Um, And for a mom, not cooking a meal is revolutionary. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I would go to a movie theater at night at two, you know, a a night show at BAM and not tell anyone where I was. And that would feel very, you know, off grid. Um, 
I had a boyfriend. We would have, you know, I would have, I would enjoy sex in the middle of the day on the kitchen table. Yes, <laughs> yes, And yes. that would feel like very liberating, especially for moms, you know, and, and wives. We don't really do that that often. Okay. Um, <laughs> I would read, I would be reading five books at a time. And sometimes for me, in my normal head, I have to finish what I started. So I'd read a book and finish a book, read a book. And, and when I'm detached, I might read three pages, put it down and not get back to that book. <laughs> For a long time. Right. Um, So, you know, I think detachment is a full-on individual thing, but it's wherever you feel, it it, it has to happen wherever you feel very tightly defined. So I get defined Mm -hmm. by my children, my spouses, my morals, and my accomplishments. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I have to detach from that. So wherever I wanted to, whatever I wanted to accomplish, I had to drop the accomplishment. So reading... Three pages in a book for me was detachment. You know, um, not caring about dinner was a detachment. Not telling people where I was going and sneaking off to a movie was detachment. Writing in my journal about, like, I write, I um, collect, like, hip-hop lyrics. Wait (laughs) wait a minute, wait a minute. When you say you collect hip-hop lyrics, so you're like... Well, I just have, I have this thing where, like, I think that hip-hop secretively is quite is feminism oftentimes uh, where we might think of it as like, you know, you know, fast behavior or brazen or reckless. Um, I sometimes see it as, as feminist thought. And are we talking um, like male hip hop artists, female, well, both, hip-hop, anybody, both. Yeah, both. anybody. Cause okay. if it, it could be Lil, Lil Wayne and I still see myself as Lil Wayne. So for me, it's feminist. Cause I'm thinking of it. I'm talking Dang. Lil Wayne, like, you know. Yes, when I'm listening, or, I am Lil Wayne. I'm not the woman that he's probably talking about. I'm him. <laughs> I'm him. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I am yeah. him. Like, when he says, got a lot to be mad about, got a lot to pop a zan about. Got a lot to be mad about, got a lot to be a man about, got a lot to pop a zan about. That to- is me. <laughs> Lil Wayne and I are in the same moment. Um, right. And I don't really do the male, female. I just talk about the lyrics of self-definition. Okay. Um, yes. You know. There's so much. I mean, and and it's so for me, that was another thing of detachment, just writing, collecting hip hop lyrics, analyzing them, thinking about them um, and putting myself as Lil' Kim or Lil' Wayne or whomever, Drake. I am them. Um, Right. Yeah. This morning I was Drake. A hundred percent. I was Drake and I was Big Sean. I was very like circa 2009. (laughs) Drake. <laughs> and my, it's so funny because my kids are, you know, they're on some other folks. I don't even know who their musicians are. Yeah, that's when you start feeling old, when you start talking to kids about music. <laughs> <laughs> Very old. Um, yeah. I definitely want to get into this conversation a bit more in terms of our identity outside of motherhood, because that is why I started Cool Moms. But first, uh, I want to talk about your identity within motherhood and being tethered in motherhood. Um, You know, you talk a lot about in a bold new world, Mm -hmm. you speak about learning a new language um, and learning a new language and mothering Penelope. Um, Is that an evolving lesson? So language is, is a living, breathing thing and it shifts. And even in the same moment in different cultures, it means something different. And we get, of course, attached to language because it helps us communicate and communication is so important. Um, Shaping the world is so important, right? 
but often I think the language, because the world is so big, we want to make it more manageable. Therefore, the language is tight. And, and often the language is not big enough to explain or express the human experience. It's just not big enough. So I found that the language that I had been using all my life was not big enough for Penelope, my, my trans son. And then it became not even big enough for myself. Because, you know, because Penelope obviously opened my eyes to just how limited I was seeing my own self. So it was like understanding my kid and then it was understanding myself and language just wasn't big enough. So I, I, I learned new language. Um, some of that was just like Googling, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. um, like under, I didn't know what transgender meant. I didn't know what cisgender meant. And so that was like some basic information that you can just Google. There's a whole, there's a great, um, you know, 40 words that come up all together in one, um, in one Google. And I just printed that page out and learned all these great words, almost like as, as if I were in grad school. It okay, was um, right. a challenge for me and an awakening for me to learn all these new words. But more than just memorizing new words and training yourself to um, use them properly and training yourself to not misgender folks and training yourself to really be intentional about your language, which takes time, even more so than that, it was a lesson in flexibility, mm-hmm. mental dexterity, you know, linguistic dexterity, because it will shift. And my children remind me that every time I think I have landed it, they'll tap me on my shoulder and say, that wasn't right. <laughs> We've Ooh, now switched okay. on to something else. Yes. And um, so, yeah, it is, a, it is an ongoing task to learn, but I use the same muscle. I just call it mental flexibility. How flexible can we be around life? And that will include language, that will include um, ideas, so mental, you know, um, the use of your brain, the use of your mouth, the use of your heart. Yes. Um, Yeah. You know, I have found that um, my mental dexterity, the bandwidth of my heart, those have been challenged and grown in some of the most unexpected places for example, um, you know, if you live in New York, you probably have a crazy story. A lot of my crazy, <laughs> a lot of my crazy stories center around when I worked as a professional dominatrix while I was in art school. Now, this space working in this dungeon was the first time that I had heard the term cisgendered. Mm-hmm. It was, the, I, I mean, a completely ignorant. And and also for context, because I think a lot of people, which is a totally different conversation, but, you know, a lot of people have their own ideas of sex work and sex workers. But again, some of the most informed, curious, intelligent people that I have been around in life in one room. And I learned so much in, in terms of identity, gender, sexuality, preferences, pleasure when working at the dungeon that I totally wasn't expecting. Um, What is your dungeon? Was there a space outside of in your own home with your children that you felt like you have been challenged and or or have learned the most unexpectedly? Hmm. Well, that that puts a flip on the word dungeon (laughs) because, you know, I don't know. I think I've learned the most inside my own home. Um, 
and I would never have called that a dungeon, but I hear what you're saying. So yeah, I think my blind spots were just, were, were, were within my own home. So a lot of times people have blind spots, um, you know, in areas of like other people over there, some culture across the water, you know, and they don't understand that other life, which is not necessarily in their home. The other life was in my home. And that blind spot was very, very, very close, um, which became a big problem, obviously. Uh, And so when I, and, and so people ask me, how did it, how did your son change your life? Well, it changed the most intimate parts of my experience because it's in my home. I have five children and one is a trans boy. My daughter identifies as genderqueer. The other's cisgender, um, but present in very different ways. And so I had to really uh, learn not how to behave outside when you're putting on your armor or, or when you're, you know, in limited moments, but in my own home, I had to be close and caring and loving and change in the most close and caring and loving moments. Um, so this wasn't about putting on an armor and pretending to be an ally. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. This wasn't about, um, you know, just using the right language. This was about changing on a very deep level. Because again, we're talking about every day in my house with the people I love, um, how to, raising my children. So I can't raise them with confusion. I had to really ingest this. So I'd say the place that I learned the most was in my own home. It was in my child's bedroom when he first said, I am not a girl, I'm a boy. Um, and then that, that also spread out into the way I loved my um, ch- other children and then myself and then my my spouses i mean i've been since then i've divorced and i've been in a relationship and and the way i loved in this most current relationship is 100% different um let's talk about it yeah i would love to i would love to touch on that a bit um i get a lot of <clears throat> questions um community conversations centered around co-parenting blended families divorce uh, all things that you experienced in the midst of COVID, um, which as if COVID was not enough, um, going through huge life transitions, I think, uh, and, and holding space for those. I would kind of love to jump ahead just a, a, a tad um, and talk about what it means to be a co-parenting mother today. Um, and less less within the framework of COVID, but more so within a, a modern framework of how does it work and how has it worked for you? And what yeah. did it take to get there? Took a lot. Um, it's, I would say now, well, let's see, how many years has it been? Four years, five years? I lose track of time. It's been several years <laughs> since we separated <laughs> and it has gotten better most recently and I don't mean better like we're you know having you know we're we're not going shopping together we're not (laughs) doing dinners together um but the way we interact and also the way we've independently settled our lives is better so I think co-parenting takes time 
because you're birthing something new. So the, I've never seen anyone birth a baby without the nine months of gestation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've never seen anybody birth without stretch marks. I've never seen anyone birth without the change of the body. So like this whole birthing, you're birthing a new relationship and that takes time to gestate. Oh um, two people who um, are somewhat okay with their lives, right? You don't have to be perfect, but you have to be okay with your life. And then it takes the next level, the next ring of people, the spouses on either side or the girlfriends and boyfriends on either side to also be okay. So it becomes this very, you know, it becomes a domino effect. Like if we're Absolutely. all pretty healthy, then it flows pretty healthily. But if we have, you know, some, if, we have, if there's major growth to be had or to be done with any of those people, it kind of blocks the flow. Which so, is step one and, and a huge step one when we're talking about personal growth <laughs> and are we starting off in a healthy space that gosh. takes some folks a lifetime, Yeah, you know, to feel well, comfortable. And, and I would say, we, like I said, we don't have to be perfect, but like if you can find happy, for me, it was about finding happiness in my work. It was about finding happiness in my home space. And it was about finding happiness in my adult sexual space. Right. And now none of those areas are perfect, but they're pretty darn good. But I had to figure out what makes me happy. So having a great love affair or love life makes me happy. Having um, a great home life with my children makes me happy. And having a great career engagement makes me happy and having a great spiritual life. So in all of those four areas, I make sure I, I touch those areas every single day. They're not perfect, but I in, interact with those four areas every single day. And I think that my ex is doing some of that similar work because he seems better off too, right? But if we're like not, so if we're not focused on what makes us happy, we can't really zero in. Um, so I think, you know, being a co-parent means really zero, spending the time to zero in on what makes you happy and then doing those things. Taking some time away from the ex is really important. you got it. You cannot stay on top of that person. You can't control that person. <laughs> okay. You can't, you know, it's just, Listen, you can't even communicate we, half the time with that person. This is why we live in separate states and it, it is right. fantastic so far. Um, mm -hmm. I think those ideas were really challenged for me in the midst of COVID because I was, um, thinking that I was embarking on a, a journey of self-discovery and doing some traveling, moved out of my place in LA, COVID hit and ended up of all places needing to live with my co-parent, with my mm -hmm. son's father. Oh, um, wow. Right. In North Carolina for about a month and a half, two months. And that, I mean, we've never existed in the same home before. So this was huge for us. And this was really eye-opening just in terms of the amount of work there is to be done collectively. And then of course, individually. Um, I really like that you said, you know, where are we at? What are kind of, what are the boxes that I need to be checking and that I need to be checking in on professionally, personally. And so mm -hmm. I want to kind of talk about checking in on a professional box uh, and we'll move our way down. Uh, mm -hmm. You wrote a book, obviously. <laughs> you wrote I've actually book. written two at this point now. I wrote yeah. The Bold World, which is a memoir. And, uh -huh. then, I and wrote, then you um, I wrote another book. book called Born Ready. Yes. 
Yeah, which is the true story of a boy named Penelope. And it's a picture book for kids. Yes. And that's coming out at the beginning of 2021. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So um, as I have not written a book yet, I've illustrated two children's books. I've done a lot of writing. So for all of um, the storytellers listening, if we could touch in just a tad on your process of writing A Bold New World, because I've Mm -hmm. read a few places you kind of spoke to some particulars of your process. And then also why it was important for you to write a story about the world that you know. Okay. Well, the process was really interesting. Um, so I'm a writer in, in, in everyday moments. I'm always not noting, notating and jotting down and, you know, um, observing things and then putting pen to paper. So I've had, I have notes and journals and books and books and books. It was at the time when I was going through, I had, was still processing, you know, the changes in our family and Penelope being trans and what that meant. And um, I had several ideas for books, right? I think almost anyone who wants to write a book has like five ideas in the beginning. So I had several ideas, right? And um, one was about family. One was about home, how we set up our home. Um, One was about being an entrepreneur and the women who've done that successfully. And so I'm sharing my ideas with a girlfriend of mine, which I think we all should do. We should share our our ideas and get some feedback. And her feedback was, okay, tell me all the ideas. So I I listed them all off. And then she said, stop right there. That's the one, that's the story. Um, And I took what she said to heart and I took a summer, two months, and I created uh, a proposal. So that is, I created an arc, like where I wanted to begin, where I wanted to end. And then I created dialogue around moments. So I drafted up, you know, the frame of the book and I put together a proposal and I hired someone to help me just to polish the structure of a proposal because I didn't even know what it consisted of. Um, And then I took that proposal and I shopped it around to an agent and I landed a great agent. And then she said, now we're going to have to really make a good proposal. <laughs> and we spent three more months writing a better proposal. So I want to just des- describe, there's a lot of preliminary work. Yes. Yes. Um, I think that's important to note. Yeah. You don't just sit behind a desk and like write a brilliant book. There's a, there's a you know, you have, it's like, it's like the blueprint is really well crafted in the months writing the proposal. Cause you're, you, you really dissect what this could be. Then when you sit down to write the book, of course, it takes a new form and it transforms in many different ways. And it becomes a book that you never even expected oftentimes, but you have a really solid blueprint to work from. Um, And so the writing process for me was interesting because again, again, I had never written a book. I hired someone and this is really important, just like you engage your girlfriends. I also engaged a woman to help structure my writing. So we met once a week. She gave me assignments. She recorded my voice. She would prompt me with questions and we would record my answers. And I would use that as writing um, foundation. Uh, She gave me deadlines. (laughs) She would look at my writing and say, I love what you just wrote, but it took you five pages to get to this really strong point. Why don't we start with that point? So she helped me structure um, the cadence of chapters. And that was really enlightening to me that you don't have to sit behind your desk beside by yourself without any sisterly help. 
Right. Um, Without that kind of like accountability partner, uh, which yeah, we, we all need accountability all for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is that someone that you were able to connect with via your agent or is that one someone that you sought out on your own? I did it through my agent, but I, you, anyone can do that. You know, there, there are companies that do it. Um, there are, if you have writer friends that would do it, it's a job though. I don't, it wasn't like a favor. I, I hired right. her and <laughs> right. she showed up responsible every week and she delivered, um, guidance and structure and critical feedback. I mean, I could not think, I mean, I can't thank her enough. She was so powerful in the structuring of, and also in the pulling out, she would really encourage me to go deeper with ideas what does that mean to you, Jody? Well, I'm, it's not clear for me. And then we would have to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and by the end of the project, on the last chapter, it was so interesting. On the last chapter, I was like, you know what? Polite, yeah, with all the due respect, do not touch this last chapter. Don't edit it. <laughs> and it was like, it was almost like the baby was, re- was fully done. You know, the right. project was fully done within me. So from the first chapter to the last, the, the, how she engaged was different. And by the end, I was like, it's, don't, don't touch it. This is the last chapter. It's mine. Don't touch it. Don't even edit it. Don't, don't move a sentence. Don't move a period. Um, but I think that can be really important, um, to understand that if we don't know how to quote unquote, write a book, we can engage with people who have experience and they don't have the words or the story that you have inside of you, but they can mm-hmm. offer, um, guidance. And that was, a, that was a game changer for me. Yes. Yes. I, I, I love that. I love that again, like in, in many ways, like an accountability partner. Mm-hmm. And I think that <clears throat> writing is so intimidating because it is difficult. Um, it is difficult to translate what's happening in your mind to something that is in many ways palatable and legible for the outside world. And one of the, one of the, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I want to just go back to one thing is that when that was really hard, when I couldn't get the words to paper, we would just talk into a microphone. And that was one of the most um, transformative um, tactics that she taught me. Yes. That you don't have to write because, you know, eventually it will be on paper, but you don't have to write to begin the writing. Yes. <laughs> to yes. begin the writing, yes. it's thought. And then it's language. And so I just spoke into my, into her recorder and those words were some of the most powerful parts of my book. Um, So if we're having a hard time writing, record ourselves and don't record yourself in the way that you would write. Just talk, have someone record a conversation um, and have that person almost like be an investigator and ask you questions, but you're chatting over maybe a cup of tea or a glass of wine Mm -hmm. or some tequila (laughs) Um, and you just let that, (laughs) let it flow. And it's like two hours and then you transcribe it and you pull things from that. Yes. Uh, this is, uh, that's such great advice. Um, that's something that I've seen a lot of folks use as well in writer's room for Mm -hmm. television shows, movies. So, um, Real, a real gem, Jody. Thank you. Um, and in terms of, you know, working on a book in a lot of ways, working on any real creative project in many ways is like working on an island. You're working and you're working. And then finally it's finished and you're ready to step off of your island and then present it to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you measure that success of your work? Well, 
you know, I was, I was so happy when I finished the book. I was so proud of the work that I had put into it. I was so proud of the language. I was really just proud of my book. Um, and it felt like I had, you know, the equivalent of just winning all the honors and the New York Times bestseller, none of which I've won. Yeah. <laughs> but it felt like that to me in the way yeah. I would assume it feels like to people when they win these awards. It felt so good, so strong, so exactly like, you know, I felt like I had really just expressed myself in the best way possible. So proud of myself. And that was the first initial measurement, just how I felt with this book. No one had read it. It had not hit the public yet. And I was so proud. And then it hit the public. Um, and I went on tour. And I've really never stopped touring. I've toured just everywhere, you know, from universities like Princeton and Spelman um, to organizations, to companies like Uber and Gap, um, to banks and hospitals, museums, everywhere. I've just not, I've not stopped in the last two years. But and that felt good. So that was a sort of measurement, I guess, that how all kinds of areas of people, all communities were interested in what I had learned in my family. But what, that, what, what hit as a blow was that the sales don't always measure or don't always match your own <laughs> level of success. So the sales right. were like a, a, a bit of a womp womp, you know? And that took me for a downward spin for a little bit. And it made me really just a little frantic. And I tried to do more and more and more. And I burnt myself out um, trying to hit sales, hit sales, hit sales, right. hit sales. And getting people to read a book is, oof, that's an uphill battle. <laughs> it is. Especially so, you know, that was something I had to learn. Like the sales don't always measure. And some sales come at different times. So what I've found is that my sale, I wanted my sales to hit in the first month, right? So I could hit some. Right bestseller lists. My sales are long-term, like schools are now buying into them and organizations are buying them and reading groups are buying them. And there's, it's still being bought now it's in paperback. And so my, my, um, growth is at a different pace. And so I had to just see that for what it was. So when you ask about measuring the success, I think it takes different forms. It takes a lot of, um, we need to have maturity to understand that like, you know, you can't like at the beginning, you just want it to hit. Um, but I see now through some experience that it, it, my, my book is, is growing more so. And success is, yeah. <laughs> and success and growth aren't linear, right? Yeah. Exactly. So I, I think the beauty about a book is that your words, your thoughts, your experiences will live on far beyond, uh, us being on this earth and in this mm -hmm. current existence and will affect people for generations and generations to come, which is why words and stories are so, so powerful and so important um, to and share. In, yeah. And in particular to share like women's stories and black stories and LGBT stories, yes. they're usually yes. relegated to oral history, right? not necessarily in the books and in the libraries and in the collections of esteemed um, writings. And so for me, just to write the book and to have it in print is um, important and then also to have told my story. Of course, I'm not telling Penelope's story. Maybe he'll tell his own story, but this is my story, tran transition, the story of a cisgender woman in her late 40s and 50s, full of privilege, transitioning into a better person. That story I wanted to tell and put in print. 
Yeah. And how have you shown up better for yourself since writing A Bold World? Well, the hurdles now aren't as scary for me. Um, I wanted to write a children's book. I had never done that. And I was like, boom, I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm now writing my third book. Um, just, and I, and I, and I'm not daunted by the fact that it's taking, it's going to take months and months and years and years to write this book because I've done that once. I've seen how long it takes to accomplish something that writing that book was like, you know, do accomplishing something I'd never done before. Most of our adult lives, we're doing what we've done a million times. We know the answer. We know how to get to the answer. We've seen it. We've done it. We can almost just push the button or do it blindfolded, right? We can do it blindfolded. But right, right. When, when you do something you've never done before, that accomplishment knocks down the other barriers. So I am now the chair of the Board of the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, which I've never shared a board before. <laughs> I've never been right. the boss what does of the that boss. Mean? Sm- so many smart people before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was something that was a hurdle, but uh, I didn't stop. The hurdle didn't scare me. And I think maybe because I had done some really bold things like writing a book. Um, yeah, I, I show up. I show up more. Show up more. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to kind of wind things down before we get to our question from the community and ask a cool mom. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of what we do as mothers, we filter things through our children in terms of like the consideration of where do we live? How do we live? Um, and even at times, who are we in this moment? Um, and we talked a lot about tethering and untethering. Um, what identities of self do you feel like you have yet to pull to the forefront? Hmm, that's a good one. Well, I don't know how to articulate this, but I also, I ask myself a lot, do I want to be married or not? Do I want to live with another adult or not? (laughs) Do I want to have, share one house with a person or do I want to have, you know, two houses or two bedrooms? So I think a lot of my questioning of myself or the part that I'm still learning is um, the independent person and the dependent person, and I have both in me. And so my, my growth is still in understanding my independence and my dependence. Um, I have, I have not, there's nothing like in terms of my work that I feel like is a big mountain that I have to climb. I'm, so, I'm, I'm sort of in my work. I, I'm going to be doing advocacy work. I'm going to be writing. I'm going to be um, producing content for television and, and books. And so that, that I feel like on the right track. But the questions that I still have are in adult relationships. And how can I be an independent person and a dependent person? And how can those two identities coexist without negating one or the other? Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that because um, I think it's uh, we are um, very career driven, very passion driven in terms of um, what the things that we want to accomplish on this earth, the legacy in which we want to leave. Um, 
but how to love mm-hmm. and how to be loved is not always necessarily toward the top of that list. Mm-hmm. Um, until a lot of times we've accomplished a lot of those goals that we've set out for ourselves and many of them which we hadn't. So um, I am so glad that you brought that up and that that's still something that you're figuring out. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as of right it, now, I am living like everyone, I, I'm living, I'm the only, my my relationship is not in my house. <laughs> so right. I have, yeah. I yes. have a, a bed, a king size bed to myself. It feels wonderful. <laughs> I have a bathroom to myself. It feels <laughs> wonderful. Um, but I still like to, you know, I still like to date. And this is, this is the, um, I don't want to diminish this conversation to just dating. It is really about how do we live in inward lives and outward lives? How are we dependent mm-hmm. and independent? And that's yes. that duality. I don't want to be binary. I don't want one of one, one of two choices. Yes. Yes. And yes. when I yes. talk about like wanting to traverse this world, this earth and to experience and to starfish, I really mean that, you know, sometimes I do want to be dependent and then other times I want to be so brazen and independent. So it's like, it is a big question of, um, of, of a non-binary existence. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And yes, yes. And that binary, I'm glad that you use that term in this context, Mm -hmm. because I think this is where living on a binary can be really problematic because as humans, we exist everywhere in between. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to take this huge wealth of knowledge and all of these thoughts and wonderful gems that you have, Jody, and let's um, move it to Ask a Cool Mom, which is our final segment of the show where an audience community member, rather the Cool Moms community, slides in my DMs and asks me a question. (laughs) And not, you know, not always the most exciting DM slide, but appreciate it nonetheless. Um, I, I think this, this is, uh, coincidentally or maybe divinely such a, I think a perfect question having you as the guest, um, seeing as that you are also working on a radical parenting book. Yes. Yes. Um, which I think you can definitely speak to in this, um, this question is from email, which is how you pronounce this person's name. And actually email is our First, dad to write in. He's 29, based in LA, and has children that are the ages of four and eight. And he asks advice on how to be a calmer, more gentle parent. Um, (laughs) He experienced yelling as a way of communicating when he was growing up. And so trying to unlearn and relearn (laughs) something different, (laughs) which is a question, which is a whole show. Literally, it's the question of the century. I mean, I, you know, I have an outwardly, at times I can be quite calm. Um, I don't blow at the, at the times that other people will blow, but there is a fury in me that comes out sometimes and it is embarrassing to talk about. I don't, and I'm not making light of it. Like I don't, parents don't share that because it is of course something not. we're not proud of, right? When we flip, we might pull an arm, you know, yank on your kid. You might just throw something. I don't, there's so many ways I've seen it come out in myself and other women um, and we just don't have the courage to talk about it because it just looks so ugly and it is a reality. And so I think the way I have tried to address that is that part of detachment, that untethering is essential. 
each day there needs to be some detachment and each week and then each month and then on on an annual basis, there has to be some untethering. And that helped me lower my anger, lower my frustration, bring up, bring out the calm, bring out the optimism. Um, So it's finding, and this is like, you know, people use this, find some time for yourself. And that's, you know, that's like, you know, almost like cliche at this point, but radical act of detachment. So what I do now is in the morning, my kids are old enough. So of course this is an individual conversation, but I don't engage until about 10 or 11. And that's, you know, what I can do now, they're 11, 12 and 14. So I don't engage until about 11, even though I get up hours before I read, I write, I, you know, make my, go for a walk with my dog, I run. And that brings the calm down. So that's one thing. Find a a radical moment of detachment that you take. Um, And it might feel reckless, but it's really going to be life-saving in terms of how we, um, you know, how we manage our our anger. Um, Another way I've dealt with it is, um, we call it the lab in my house. And whenever we have a disagreement we lab it out. So anything that we're in disagreement on, whether it's who gets the front seat in the car, which could blow up into like a huge argument, right? Um, Or like gender or race or religion. So we sit on the floor because it levels the playing field. And whoever has the proverbial microphone gets the moment to speak and they can speak as long as they want. And the rules are you can't interrupt. So this is going to encourage long form conversation. So it takes a long time. You have to give time for sometimes it's two hours. So each person can say what they feel and speak their truth. And sometimes it, it often gets very heated because the, the truth on, in, in one instance, I have a child who's a scientist, he's 14. And he says, look, I respect my brother. I will always use the right pronouns, but scientifically speaking, Penelope is a girl. So let's just be, let's be real here. Like, all of this talk about transgender is not scientifically proven. And this is something heavy on him. And when he said it, if he didn't say it in that circle, it would be fighting words. But exactly. in this circle, everyone can speak their truth, right? So then right. Penelope takes his turn and he says, well, guess what? Um, it's not always about science. <laughs> I'm here. It's not an opinion. Right. I've proven it. <laughs> there is no debate whether I exist or not. Transgender is a reality. I'm a reality. I'm here. And this is right. how God has made me. And he fleshes that out. And then when it's the scientist's turn, he says, well, God isn't proven yet either. So all of this talk, like, <laughs> and so then it becomes, you know, a conversation about God. It just takes, it's, it turns and twists and we talk it out, we lab it out. And in the end, they, they still don't agree. So the goal is not to agree. The goal is to just flesh out these big concepts so that big concepts become no big deal. And after two hours of talking, they then say, this is so boring. You want to go play some basketball? Okay. (laughs) So I've taken something that could have been a fight between two people, one who's trans and one who doesn't believe transgender people exist. It's a a fallacy. And we've now long form conversationed it out. We've labbed it out. We've talked about it from both the truths. And now the 
gap between the two does not matter. They will have to go play basketball together and eat dinner together and live together. They can coexist with different opinions, different ideas, and different truths. And so that to me is how we have diffused not only my anger, but their anger and the anger that exists within families because we are passionate and closely <laughs> positioned next to each other. Uh, so I call it labbing it out. And it's, it's long form conversation with no interruptions with the goal of not agreeing. The goal is only to discuss and debate with decorum. Which is fantastic life skills, one, to learn. And two, it also takes away this idea, this notion that parents have all the answers and that we're mm-hmm. always leading. Mm-hmm. And instead, uh, yeah, levels the playing field. Yeah. Um, so that we are guiding one another to a certain understanding, even if it's just an understanding of perspective and not agreeance. So I think that's great. Email, um, I, I'm saying email and I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but Amel, Amil, email, my wonderful friend. Uh, <laughs> take your time to be untethered. Lab it out with your kids once they're a little bit older. Yeah. Um, and have patience with yourself. Oh, and by the way, I did the, yes. the labbing it out when they were three, four, and five. We've done this. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, we've done this from day one. And so anytime we had a disagreement, I'm talking when they were just, you know, learning to talk, we sat on the floor and labbed it out. So this is something we can do with our young kids. It's even takes even longer with young kids because they take five minutes to finish a sentence, but it also gives the parent time to defuse. Um, and so start that process of labbing it out early um, with your children. And I have, I've taken that tactic to um, companies too. I, I teach it in a corporate, in a corporate setting. Um, because it, it, it's counterintuitive. Most people want to be efficient with their time. They want to, you know, get through things really quickly. But labbing it out is a counterintuitive process that actually pays off in the end. So start young or whatever, whatever age it can work. Start now. Yeah. Yeah. Start now. <laughs> start now. Exactly. Um, and thank you so much for that, Jody. And before I close out, I just um, I think we're seeing more and more now that it is important to give folks their flowers while they are here. Mm. So I just want to take a, a, a quick moment to say thank you and express my gratitude to you. Um, and that, you know, I moved to New York probably around 2011. And as a young black woman, creative, popping, trying to make it happen, ambitious, passionate, there were a handful of established Black New York women that I was told to know about, to learn about, to um, pay attention very closely to the trajectory of their personal and professional careers in many Mm -hmm. ways. And you are one of those women and you have just continued to live unapologetically, live passionately and live honestly. And I think that those are... um, really revolutionary (laughs) and really difficult. Um, And so I just want to say thank you because you are incredibly inspiring to me and many, many other women, especially young black women. Oh, well, I am. I think this time, this time in like today, but this, these last few months have brought out a lot of um, beauty and optimism. And I respect the, the, how complicated this life has been and the death and the destruction and despair. But I also see a lot of beauty and power 
and possibility. And these conversations can help us draw and pull out the possibility. And so I want to thank you for having me on. I want to thank you for engaging with moms because I think I see all of the possibility in the home. I see all of the possibility, particularly with moms and women or people leading our team in a motherly way. I think mothering can be done by all types of folks, uh, men and women, cis and trans, rich and poor, old and young, biological or otherwise. Mothering is like this um, power structure that I was talking about in the beginning. And we need to mother, not only in our homes, but in our boardrooms and in our politics, um, taking a bird's eye view of the situation and deciding that no one will be lost in this process. So I really thank you for bringing me on and I hope we can stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And until next time. Not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. (laughs) 